0: Good morning and welcome to yet another episode of an unqualified guide to the good life the show where we try to work out what it means to live well despite having no qualifications to do so my name's Adam with me as always uh, in spirit and digitally not physically he's in Geneva is Nick um, co-host co-conspirator um, just generally co back for uh, what is the, the final episode of, of season two um, how are you doing Nick?
1: Um, I'm good. Thanks. That was that was a pretty good introduction. I appreciated it, you know. We just we, we it Thank felt you. like we were allies <laughs> for once. <laughs> I know, it's taken
0: what, thirty one episodes, but um finally <laughs> We're building a friendship. It You'll be glad to know <laughs>
1: <laughs> The listen initiative. We'll be glad to know. Yeah, I'm I'm okay. I'm, as I mentioned to you like two minutes ago very hard to get out of bed this morning and um
0: the listeners don't need to know that the listeners (laughs) listeners can just know that we are um you know these hyper productive they know that's not true no 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 don't get me wrong
1: i did get out of bed i'm just not happy about it so that and reasonable how are you adam
0: yeah i'm fine similarly it's an hour earlier here. So for no, me, true. getting out of bed was even more um, <laughs> daunting. Uh, that's pretty funny. Yeah. The listeners don't need to know how long before getting on this call I got out of bed. <laughs> they don't need to know
1: when this call was. It's sometime Monday that's morning. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, how are you feeling about concluding, well, actually, a second season of podcasting? I'm frankly surprised
0: we made it this far.
1: Yeah, I resent that actually because <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're implying.
0: <laughs> it's listen, I'm all the all I'm implying is is entirely from my end. But no, it's um, I I'm I'm feeling pretty good about about this season. I think it's it's the season in which we found our feet. By by which I mean sort of did any planning. Whereas in season one was just whatever we wanted to talk about that day. Season
1: two. We had a theme, Nick. Yeah. A theme. Yeah. That's a big difference. And now you have a mic. So... Oh, I do.
0: Yes, listener, listen, listener. Oh, listen do you like this? I've got is. It's so crisp. Ooh. It's so clear. Ooh, radio I bought DJ. a hot It's on radio DJ. It's Ooh. on my desk. I clipped it to it. I've even got a pop filter, so Wow. See? See that? nothing it's fine actually looking at audacity that wasn't that, great that wasn't I great did, I, can but... I can
1: hear it uh... <laughs> you just spat at your mic anyway um <laughs> yeah do you tell us tell us something tell us something kind of slick and radio give us a vibe give us a vibe <clears throat> now you got this new okay. mic let's hear something okay um
0: my name is roman mars and this is 99 percent invisible
1: how about that how about that Ooh, hooey. i didn't i didn't expect it to be that smooth actually well done
0: yeah, yeah. Do you think Roman Mars will be angry at us oh, that we impersonated him? I don't, I
1: don't, I don't him? know. I don't know
0: who Roman Mars is, but fuck. Him. You need to listen to more podcasts. I can't believe you don't know who Roman Mars
1: is. But that's. <laughs> I don't, dude. I don't listen to any podcasts except for one, and no, it's not this one. <laughs> it's crazy. You didn't
0: need. To, that's crazy. We need to have a word about that in our next strategy meeting. <laughs> that's that's not true. I do listen to this podcast,
1: but only because I edit it.
0: You didn't need to say that. That's crazy. Let's move on before you hurt yourself. Okay. I listened to it other times as well. Nick, what are we going to be talking about today?
1: (laughs) We are going to be talking about, um, in a very vague sense, because we do have themes, but sticking to them is a challenge I resent. Um, Utopia, the notion of utopia, and... um, what um, the value may be of, of holding a notion of utopia is or can be when trying to advance society, right? So a lot of our episodes have centered on either the individual actions and perspectives uh, that one can take or the organizations or institutions or non-institutions of state that... Um, are the building blocks for a functional, virtuous, charitable society. And um, we thought maybe it would be a nice way to conclude our discussions on virtue and the topics that I just described by debating whether or not there is a value in holding a sense of utopia, a sense of an ideal when trying to make plans to make society better, you know, do we just work from one thing at a time or is there value in holding a vision? Uh-huh. Um,
0: I, yes, that's a very succinct summary of what we're going to be talking about. Um, and I th- true to form, um, uh, I think that, you know, part of, uh, part of any utopia is owning is up to your mistakes. And I'm about to own up to two, one of which is not doing what I'm about to do before you went into that explanation. And the other is that we actually have to make a correction wow um, su- okay submit yeah <laughs> submitted to us by um by by uh, a listener sarah sarah thank you for submitting this um friend of the show um and pointed out that in in episode 8 of season 2 um when talking about the uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, Nick, you said that the case was based upon the daughter not being able to attend the all-white school that was close to her house, but rather having to walk a considerable distance to the segregated all-black school instead. This is an error. Uh, this decision was actually based on, on many cases, um 12 posits that were all put together when argued before the supreme court but linda brown was actually bused to the black school the argument hinges on the fact that the segregations in schools didn't provide an inferior education the schools were particularly good in topeka but that being separate was psychologically damaging to black students
1: mm. okay well actually that is a vital correction um particularly because in a weird and twisted way it gives kind of um legitimacy to the claims of segregation if the schools weren't in fact deprived of particular facilities, right? Um, Because psychological damage is more intangible to argue for um, and maybe easier to argue against, particularly if you're the dominating power. But um, anyway, thank you for the correction, Sarah. Uh, Weird time to slot it in, but, you know, we... (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah you know what i, I uh, yeah you're right you're right maybe you should have l- wait till the end <laughs> done it first the
1: end. <laughs> maybe yeah. here we are yeah but we should have started with it can but thank you for the correction um please if you have any other comments uh which which are corrections or, or you know elaborations on anything we've said do send them to us as you can see we do mention them eventually <laughs> at some point randomly in the show <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, excellent point. Shall I, well, in that case, shall I at this point ask you how you feel about season two? Because just the order of everything is completely out of whack.
1: <laughs> no, let's get back to utopia yeah, and okay. um, the value of utopia, um, the merits of utopia, the dangers of utopia as well. I have a quote um, with me here, which um, is from The Ghosts of Nagasaki. And um, quotes a character who says, you've got to beware of the utopian train of thought mate. That's usually the first step towards fascism. That's a- an interesting notion because um, particularly if utopias, as they conceived of in literature or cultural um, spaces, um, often require planning, right? And um, the notion of social or socioeconomic planning um can also often lead to fascism. If you've read The Road to Serfdom by Hayek, um, then then maybe that connection feels a bit more obvious to you, or maybe you disagree with that notion. But um certainly it's one that has been argued for and um and uh, this the danger in utopia can be exposed in that sense, right? Um another crucial a potential limitation of utopia that I would also like to bring up, by quoting someone, um, is is as follows: Utopia was here at last. Its novelty had not yet been assailed by the supreme enemy of all utopias, boredom. And that's from mm. Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End. So yeah, those those two introductory quotes hopefully introduce the premise of um, well. Fascism and centralized control that might be necessary to bring about any kind of functional conception of utopia um, very quickly making it a dystopia. And secondly, well, if we do live in a perfect world, we're going to be pretty bored.
0: So that's um that's very interesting uh and and makes me think of um all, all manner of sort of dystopian novels that I've read Brave New World uh, to be the, to be the the one that immediately comes to mind um and and I think that you are going to explore this through some through some novels through some literature as you
1: are want to do I am yeah I'm not going to bring up Brave New World nor am I going to bring up 1984 because I guess um. They're too explicitly dystopian, and um, I wanted to focus on yeah, maybe examples that might, um, but might at least have a, a higher dose of optimism to begin with. Sure, you know, um, so Aldous Huxley and George Orwell were not the people to turn to for that. Um, and um, much as much as they have a lot to say on the subject, before I do I actually get started down that road. Um, do you do you want to give us a quick definition of Utopia? I know you um, looked into that a little bit.
0: Oh, I did. Well, Utopia, uh, as we think of it today, is comes from a um, book written by I think a satirical piece written by Thomas More in 1516, mm. and the name Utopia contains an an inherent semantic ambiguity. As the article says um, it it may be derived from Utopos, the, from the Greek "ou topos," meaning no place. But as right. utopia is pronounced in English, it would be indistinguishable from utopos "eu topos," meaning good place. So in this, Thomas More is both saying this is sort of a a, a good place and also an impossible place.
1: Right, perfect. Um, that's uh, actually a lovely definition. It holds so much meaning.
0: Absolutely, Thomas yeah. More, clever guy. 500 years ago. Clever
1: guy, clever guy indeed. And basing his uh, inspiration off the ancient Greeks is um, helpful because although it seems then like the ancient Greeks did not conceive of this concept themselves, they certainly, um, particularly in their philosophy and maybe in their plays and uh, you know cultural pieces, did provide you know, possibilities of utopia or certainly discuss the notion of ideal society. And um you know, I'm I'm fascinated by that of the Epicureans and um their kind of basically anarchist communes <laughs> <laughs> um where sort of course, pleasure was like highest value to be held. And um, um but more more famously perhaps is, is Plato's The Republic one of the founding texts really of um western philosophy and therefore western academia um in which plato expands on uh, a variety of his ideas which i feel um are batshit crazy in many respects, but um uh the, the the kind of the crucial one is that of um of how society should be shaped and how the most just society should be built, basically, mm-hmm. and um, in essence, what he's what he's introducing is is kind of like an epistocracy, um, which
0: epistocracy. Uh, You're gonna have to dumb which, that yeah. one down for me, Nicholas. I uh, will. It's thank um, you. An,
1: episto- an epistocracy is basically um, it's a democracy with a knowledge threshold.
0: <laughs> okay. Right. Um, right, and
1: that can be both from the perspective of the voting public, which have to be qualified enough to vote, or from the ruler, the ruling class. Um, and in Plato's case, it's from the ruling class, which means that um, there is basically a, a, a class of society or um, a, a section of very talented children who get taken away from their children, uh, from their sorry, from their parents, and spend like twenty years. Studying, um, studying all of these like arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, music—you know, the different fields of mathematics, philosophy—in order to become wizened kings, basically.
0: Now, Nick, I've spent the best part of twenty years studying, and I'm not a wizened king.
1: No, no, you're not. And I really, I, I—that's a personal. I think a personal. <laughs> If you, yeah. But one of the one of the interesting things is um, so up until 18 guardians should be would be guardians should be engaged in basic intellectual study and philosophical training or physical training rather than five years of philosophy and 10 years of mathematics and five years of dialectic training should be spent um, and then 15 years of um, leadership training. Wow. Um, so that um, and also, uh, you know, understanding of the world of forms and the world of kind of Plato's caves. And it's kind of connected to his whole philosophy. Um, in essence, his argument for having philosopher kings is that um, the world as we know it, or as most people see it, is like seeing shadows being cast on the walls of a cave. So we never actually get to see the full truth of things. Right, But in reflecting and observing and understanding forms and shapes, we get to understand that ideas are ideals and um, live as essences in a world that rarely, very few of us have access to. And um, that reflection and study will give us more and more insight into that. So the very few people who can actually see life as it truly is, who can actually see the world of forms rather than just the shadows Um, that most people see dancing on the walls are philosophers. Therefore, philosophers who are most, um, most prone, most close to the truth are in the best position to lead. And so to be given the training in order to understand reality and truth through the methods of philosophy, as well as to be taught martial arts and leadership skills equips you according to Plato by the time you're kind of 30 40 50 to be the leader that your people need you to be and um,
0: it's convenient that um the 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 founder of western philosophy also said that trust me guys philosophy you'll be jacked you'll be a king and it's the most important thing you can do I feel like he was just (laughs) angling for job security a little bit maybe
1: (laughs) yeah I, I think so um he also um, denounces poets, basically, as like the antithesis to this because poets are people who disguise the truth rather than expose it, oh, like the philosophers. So um, that's why Plato famously um, is, is, is anti-poetry <laughs> and alti- anti-culture in some respects. Um, so a very serious guy would have made a very boring society according to that. It's interesting yeah. to note that there is also an artisan class um or Mm -hmm. the bronze class as he refers to it a warrior class a bronze class
0: is a way better name than an artisan class
1: yeah well i mean that's official that's essentially what they are right right there's the the workers the artisans the people who make things that's the bronze class there are the soldiers which is the silver class and then there's the gold class which is the kind of the guardian class the philosopher class um, and obviously that's a society which is socially controlled, where people's children, um, have very little social mobility, but the gifted ones can rise upwards. Um, they're taught and taken into care almost entirely by the state so that their parents can keep working and remaining functional parts of the economy and of society. And, um, it's classist and it's socially engineered. And there's not much space for art. Um, yeah. And maybe those are not the most important virtues or skill sets that you need in order to become a leader. Maybe the best way to make leaders is not to isolate people for 30 years from society <laughs> and teach them philosophy. Yeah, or maybe. To, yeah, anyway, it was, it, was an, it was an interesting first attempt. And for me, it certainly highlights the notion of, of, of what might be taken into account for utopia you know there is a social component there's a political component there is even an economic component that's being considered here yeah that's that's plato's republic there's a lot else to say but um in the interest of time i will i will move beyond it it's certainly worth reading if you want to know more about plato more about kind of um, philosophy or western philosophy i should say and kind of the building blocks of our own methods of thinking it's a pretty pivotal book even though I personally think the majority of it is garbage, but um,
0: <clears throat> I was—if um, uh, if I may interject with a with a, with a brief brief note, Nick. when I was about um, thirteen or, or, or fourteen, we had a, an assignment in social studies class. Where we had to design an ideal society. Now, I hadn't read Plato's Republic at the time. I still haven't read Plato's Republic, <laughs> but um, but my—it's a great anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That's the end of the story. Um, no, my uh, I, I got an I got an A minus, and my um, social studies teacher, Mister Kirkwood, uh, a- accused me of being Plato. However, I did in the in the margins. Uh, note the the worrying similarity that I myself had created to to Animal Farm. I say he accused me of being Plato. He said, "Oh, this is kind of like what Plato said," which is not the same thing. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, you walked around with an inflated ego for weeks and months. <laughs> Plato, this guy right here.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good at philosophy. Very good at wrestling.
1: Exactly. But yeah, can so...
0: can perhaps lead to as as you said at the top. Um, slippery slope to to flat, to fascism.
1: Yes, yes, nicely nicely put. Thank you, thank you for that. And um, and I, I want to move on now beyond that to uh, another depiction of utopia in um, literature in slightly more contemporary literature, although not exactly contemporary. Um, where another condition or another consideration beyond the socioeconomic and the political is being considered, and that's the technological. And um, the book that I, or the novella rather, that uh, I want to bring up is The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, probably one of my all time favorite books, really, um, which was written by really the patron saint of science fiction um hg wells who also very famously wrote a war of the worlds um about the kind of alien invasion of earth that was broadcast on the radio and at first thought to be real by um, yeah. uh, um uh, a panicking fan base um a real news announcement that the aliens had arrived um it was like in 1910 or something but uh yeah, he wrote this little book, *The Time Machine*, in eighteen ninety-five, um, which I think is based in the premise that during this Victorian era, towards the end of the Victorian era, the end of the nineteenth century in Britain, the empire of um, Britain imperialism was sort of at an all-time high, and uh, but also sort of beyond that, it was also starting to decay, and you could kind of feel that in the in like the kind of more debaucherous, less more loosely moral books like Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, um, critiques of the Empire, um well, critiques if you consider them as such, like The Heart of Darkness, for instance. There was a sense that the values and fabrics of this strict Victorian British society were starting to erode a little bit. And um mm-hmm. well, I mean they were corrupted to begin with, let's be honest. But um uh, people were starting to become aware of that and that's maybe what they were being sold is this kind of sense of supremacy and absolute dominance that promised to be infinite was probably not going to be the case and um this was also compounded by some advances in science right when new technologies were being developed um we didn't you know have the car or the plane yet by then or the television but um you know we we did we'd have the camera that was invented in that era we had the bicycle um and the steam engine and uh you know huge uh, industrial industrialization and industrialism um you know the the growth and development of cities and then also we had like scientific advances like darwin's theory of evolution right which was taken by um eugenicists and scientists of race and other people with made-up jobs (laughs) who um who basically kind of uh based the theories of british supremacy as americans would later do on some of these theories right Um, and then and then um the the the, also the flip side of that was brought up which was that like as humans were on a path towards evolution which seemed to cement endless progress there was also the the idea of regression and of life moving in a cycle and that as societies or or species grow and evolve they will ultimately reach a peak and then they will fall off and regress um and disappear from the earth before the next species rises up and takes their place so to speak Mm -hmm. you know so then this this fear this scientific fear started to become prevalent in um kind of the 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 british cultural space or the, the the collective unconscious as a psychoanalyst might put it um that that maybe britain um had peaked and was on its way down and um this this book the time machine kind of takes us a few hundred years into the future at least at first um to where 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 britain currently is um you know to, to the same place um to to london but no longer as we know it um because the society of the future is um Institutionless, which is to say that there are no frameworks uh, under which society is organized. Um, all illness has been eradicated. Um, fruits oh. and vegetables have been engineered to just grow plentifully. So no work has to be done to toil the land. Um, yeah, as I said, illness has been eradicated. Money is a moot m- concept. Um and and the people who inhabit this land are diminutive. They're quite small in stature. They're pretty stupid um, in comparison to adults as we know them now. They're infantile uh, because they've never had to grow up. They speak a very basic language. They seem almost incapable of taking care of themselves, but luckily require very little in order to take care of themselves. And um, ultimately, it turns out, that um, they are not the only inhabitants of the land, um, that there are underground uh, creatures, the Morlocks, um, who are a little bit more uh, simian in their features, a little bit more dexterous and agile. Um, they're scared of the sun. And uh, really, this is kind of like the working class and the aristocracy who live you know, on the lavish, lush, safe land and just kind of play all day and don't really do anything. And then you have like the workers who basically are like the, the people in the coal mines who haven't seen the sun in so long that now they can't be exposed to it anymore because oh. it'll just kill them. Um, so like, it's like, ev- like evolution because of socioeconomic engineering, the human race is split into two different categories. Right. One of which, one of which, um, lives underground and, and is really the dystopia. Um, and the other of which lives upstairs. And, and I, you know, I don't kind of want to ruin like what the, exactly the relationship of those two different, well, races at this point is. Um, but, um, certainly it speaks to that other fear of, um, socioeconomic engineering, um, on a societal level and classism, like, um, Plato was trying to introduce, um, those, those thousands of years ago. And, um, but really what I wanted to draw attention to is something that connects to my uh, opening quote. And that's that for the time machine in, in the ground level society, um, because there is no hardship, because necessity has been eradicated from the daily life of all of those individuals at a terrible price, admittedly, those individuals are not spurred on to develop or even to remain sharp and skillful, which are the necessary tools we might need to navigate the world as we know it. Mm -hmm. So, in a world where everything is taken care of, people become lazy, um, they become petulant, childish, and ultimately, for children born into this environment, they don't actually develop beyond the stage of childhood, because they are allowed to remain playful children their whole lives. And I wonder, uh, for me, it's the most kind of compelling warning of kind of, you know, attaining all securities, you know, and then being like, well, now, now what do you do? You know, it's sort of on a small scale, you could consider it as like, well, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you make so much money, you never have to work again, what the hell are you going to do with the rest of your life? You know, imagine all of society didn't have to do that. It speaks to kind of like what people would do on universal basic income and these things. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on on that, Adam, yourself so
0: well the 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 thought that comes to mind as you're speaking about it is is maybe that's that's only a bad thing because we we understand the alternative right i mean the the basis of um i suppose christian theology is of a return to a garden where we don't have the understanding of the difference between between good and evil and what mm. um and what better definition of of adulthood can there be than having that that understanding sure there's practical mm. things but in a in a sort of um moral sense that that's different now obviously we we know uh, in 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 the world, hgl wales world that he's created that, that this is a negative thing because there is an underclass that this is built on yeah but he's not just going around and enjoying yourself and not having to worry about the ills of the world that, that's how most creatures live <laughs> live their lives humans are perhaps different although i suppose creatures um, do have to struggle yeah. i was yeah. thinking of pets
1: Right, yeah. yeah. That's it's quite how a pets rosy depiction of, of nature, yeah. you know? It's how pets it's, live their lives, yeah, Pets yeah. have a great time. Yeah, animal, um, animals eat each other's and their own children. Well, <laughs> not, not all animals. If they get hungry. Some of them do. <laughs> no,
0: I did definitely mean pets. Um, but, yeah, I, I wonder if there's not, not an, in, an inherent contradiction between um, the sort of... <laughs> promised utopias and what, and what that would actually be like, which I suppose is your point. So, so well done.
1: Mm. Well, I appreciate it. Um, and well, you know, what, what's interesting um, there with regards to the additional component of technology is that the technology allows presumably the traveler to get into the future and to see beyond that society and to go backwards as well. And again, in, also in this space, there is no culture, there is no art. There is no room for it because there is no impetus. Like, what are people going to do? Maybe they'll finger paint or something. But sure, um, the, 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 the conception and the exploration of this, the notions of suffering and desire are kind of non-existent. Um, but uh, the the um, the technology is also presumably what has allowed the land to be engineered so successfully and uh, what has eradicated disease. And mm-hmm. kind of like pernicious insects, for instance, from the planet, right? Um, bless you. But Thank you.
0: The listener didn't hear that because I turned the gain right down, which is something I can do
1: now. Right. Nice. New skills unlocked. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, in, in, um, in our own contemporary society, our understanding of technology is slightly further along, in a sense, you know. And maybe the hope is that technology can genuinely emancipate everyone. Right. Because we can have autonomous work rather than this sinister underclass. We could have robots. Obviously, that comes with its own kind of uh, constraints and conditions, you know, but um, maybe the price of human emancipation is is robotic AI enslavement <laughs> well that's
0: um well well first of all I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with enslaving AI and I think it's wrong of us to think of AI as not something to be enslaved to that's a whole different conversation yeah um, Android dream of electric sheep well that's that, well, that's different, because they were flesh and blood. They were not electronic, but... Um... Uh-huh. <laughs> well, it's not actually about sheep. <laughs> no, not the sheep. The androids. In the... Anyway, that's a okay. whole different conversation. The androids were, like, manufactured people. They had flesh and blood. Anyway, right. there is a difference between an android and a robot, as I learned on a course I did as, as an undergraduate. But uh, I've, I've, have you've thrown me my train of thought about what I was going to um, say. Oh, yes. Well, the idea that you're describing has been called um, fully automated luxury communism, which is an incredible name for a utopian ideology. Uh, it, the role of technology is an interesting one. I was talking to someone not long ago who was who 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 ran a a, a, sort, a sort of organization for for encouraging uh, pragmatic utopians, and and he outlined three. Um, ways like ways to utopia technological solutions which is kind of what you've described there where maybe we can outsource the work to to robots um economic solutions which involve sort of uh you know huge redistributions of wealth um and those are the two that get focused on most often in in sort of yeah utopian thinking and there is definitely a role for both of these but he also outlined ontological solutions where it's by by changing our mindset in a sort of um uh, yeah, I suppose so. It's the the constellations of philosophy, right? Like, how can we think mm-hmm. about the world so that it becomes utopian, uh, uh, or more, more utopian as it is, rather than having to force massive structural change? Perhaps the path of least resistance. Nice, nice uh, framework. It is, it is, and um, that seems like a good place to move on to to what I was going to talk about, which is um, as as is not uncommon for me rambling and confusing. Um <laughs> I I was going to talk Nick about um about about utopia in 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 different cultures. Um but I found something more interesting to talk about. Because utopia in different cultures is is just variations on on, on a theme, I guess. Um I I found an article by a guy called Lyman Tower Sergeant, which is a great name. Um which talked about non-Western utopias. Perhaps the most famous of which is called uh, the Peach, Bl- the Peach Blossom Spring, which is a poem by Tao Yuanming, um, and was written between three fifty-six and, uh, or he lived between three fifty-six and four twenty-seven, um, and it's just a peaceful pe- peasant society. Um, but and variations on this have been found within Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, Islam, Taoism. Um, there are some perhaps uh, more contemporary non-Western things we might know of. Um, mohandas gandhi uh, he he created um he used the Hindu notion of ramaraja um a golden age as a way of communicating these ideas even Ayatollah Khomeini created a vision of of an Islamic republic but perhaps what's more more interesting than these and i will i will brief, briefly outline such a an idea that you made me think of when you were talking about the cyclical nation of uh, notion of history um in, in regards to golden ages that come and go. Um, There are a group of people in Mongolian Russia called the Buryat and they're Buddhists and they have this really cyclical notion of history and according to their sort of cosmology there will be uh, times when a great blue elephant comes and wreaks massive destruction and ushers in the next age whether it's an age of decline or an age of prosperity Um, and they believe that Joseph Stalin was one incarnation of this elephant. Wow. But that aside, uh, I, I also highlighted some some pro, uh, problems with utopia, and perhaps the most famous comes from from Karl Popper, uh, and and basically summarized what what you said al- already, um, and, and that's that blueprint utopianism, as he calls it, leads to violence ultimately, um, and he says that you know the Republic and certainly Marxist communism contain contain the seeds of violence within their um, critique, and and he argues that. Uh, a, a utopian vision is is having a blueprint of an ideal society fully formed before one embarks upon a political project and one can see the dangers there right because it's so easy to assume that you don't have the wrong idea you have the wrong kind of people and and when you try and change the people or else cull them so that only the ones with the right ideas remain uh that's that's fascism and so he he sort of Creates this idea of, of utopia as process, and I think there is something to investigate there. But actually, what I want to get your opinion on, Nick, is is an article I I, I found from the School of Life. It, it didn't list an author, unusually, but um, it was about the role of culture in a utopian society. You said that uh, in, in H. G. Well, Wells' H. G. Wells's world, the Morlocks don't have culture. Is it the Morlocks?
1: Or well, the... actually, I don't think I don't think either of them do. But the Eloi are the are the um. The overground class, right? And the Morlocks are the ones who live underground. But um, as far as I know, the Morlocks definitely, uh, the Eloi definitely don't have culture. Um, and museums have just fallen into disarray, um, and cultural spaces are just being are just extinct if they if they if they're not just decaying.
0: I see. Well, this um this article talks about a, a a utopia that does have culture. And their critique of culture in our contemporary society is that the guardians of it, namely those who sort of work in and curate art galleries, music producers, all that kind of stuff, they decide that art should exist for its own sake. And this is perhaps a, a noble in its intention of of preserving culture and giving it a certain importance. But um Artists often believe in in art having practical and utilitarian aims, and that in a utopia, art's role should be taken seriously. Aristotle believed that watching tragedy was was useful because it shook us free of self-righteousness, prejudice, and moral blindness, and that in in a utopia, uh, culture would have the singular role of being a a form of therapy, who the um, author of this piece argues is just an intervention designed to help us function well and and puts forward ideas of perhaps uh, galleries curated not based on where they're from or the time that they're from but from what they're trying to do we could got exhibits called called envy or anxiety and we wouldn't study courses like history or english literature but courses like the role of error and the need for status and and yeah. gain our lessons from from across the 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 arts sciences and humanities and that ultimately, art uh, in all its forms uh, would become a sort of manual for for how to have a good society that society writes for itself. Before I before I get your your opinion on this, I, I just want to share a, a quote that my friend, who is an artist, sent to me in a text message when I when I sent him this article, and he writes. But yeah, I completely agree with the article. As a matter of fact, that's almost exactly what my final project was about. It's also why I've made the choice to pursue design over art, and why I make such a fuss about the difference between the two. I mean, Throughout my course, I was always dumbfounded by the shit fine artists were doing. You know, there'd be some kid tying a load of balloons together and dangling it down a stairwell because their project sought to explore how that would interact with space or some bullshit. Basically all projects being run in that specialism were just a matter of asking questions, and the people doing those projects always spoke about it like they were on some glorious grail quest. And I'd just be standing there thinking, okay, cool stack of balloons, but why though? Like what could you possibly
1: or tangibly hope to achieve? okay i feel like we should just be explicit and um instead of trying to bullshit something which is probably not going to work out well um the internet cut on adam's side of the call and um so we're gonna resume our conversation which was ended abruptly <laughs> we'll try and edit that a bit more slickly but uh, basically we're gonna pick up where we left off at which was where adam was talking about um uh, and and quoting actually from a friend of his who was uh specifically choosing to study design in favor of fine art because of the utility of art right and that to um to consider art for the sake of art exclusively was um basically a slap in the face to art in a sense right and everything that it could offer to society and um the point that i wanted to make in contrast to that is that there is some merit to that um when discussing something like design because functionality is an inherent part of the design process. Design is an inherent part of functionality, right? And to an extent, the skills of fine art may be appropriated to that. But if there was no such thing as fine art and fine artists had to use those skills specifically for utility in society, they would be, they would be just, they'd just be painters. They'd just be painting walls, right? Um, or, or you know, there's, there's, I don't, I don't know, there's things that don't really translate as well.
0: Well, I think that that's an interesting view, and maybe to an extent you're right, but I think that that, that in itself is is constructed as well. Like it, it, historically, um, there was not the division between, um, uh, like a like a potter and an artist, for example, that we have now. There was mm. like, art, like, in fact, I, I I'm not even sure there's a separate word for art and design. They, right. um, they, they, it was, things were designed to be functional and functional things should also be aesthetically beautiful or whatever definition of yeah. art we want to pick that's sure, a whole other sure, ra- rabbit then, hole but
1: then, but then those are your, with, with uh, visual artists you're either drawing or painting on canvas which is tangible material or you're building things musicians exist in intangible expression right musicians can build instruments i suppose but if music if music has to be functional then it's either religious or advertising right which means that all music would be a jingle i don't know that (laughs) that, i don't know that's
0: true because if you i mean are you because because the alternative to that is you hope that music has no effect on the people that listen to it
1: no, I think I think there are some effects. I'm just saying, how could you possibly impose the constraint of functionality on a musician?
0: Well, I think I think that maybe we're, we're we're talking around different definitions of functionality. Like, I don't think that necessarily has to be towards a, a a productive manufacturing economic ends, but rather as as the the original article said, as a form of therapy. Right, like it helps us mm. to to make sense of and categorize of uh, the world. And, and deal with with the world's um,
1: bullshit, basically. <laughs> mm, okay, but then even in the sense of like morality, you know, um, like because for instance, the, the the dismissal of the claim that like all art for, of art for art's sake, like that's like the philosophy that Oscar Wilde, for instance, is trying to espouse, you know. And he's trying to he's trying to stay away from books as moral or immoral or you know edifying considerations. Right, I mean, necessarily, maybe when you tell a story, um, a reader, an interpreter will want to in- apply morality to it. But there, there is no necessarily a need for inbuilt morality. You can just allow the space for it to be the case, you know. But maybe that's already a function of the novel. Like maybe that's just what exists there already, you know. I don't know how you can make explicitly therapeutic music. Maybe music is just therapeutic. Yeah.
0: But yeah. I, I think that, that
1: maybe there's no distinction, you know,
0: certainly. And I, I don't know if I have developed enough idea to, to take a serious claim. But I think that certainly the um, the author of this article would argue that musical is yeah. by itself therapeutic in the specific sense of therapy uh, that, the, that the author is using, which is an intervention designed to help us function well. Not, not, and, and, you know, they, they lump together like, um, therapy and most commonly used as we think of it in sort of psychological therapy, there are medical therapies and there are, according to the author, cultural therapies as well.
1: Mm, mm. No, fair enough. And I do hear that. Um, and maybe like the process of writing music, for instance, is therapeutic in and of itself. You know, the process of Mm. writing, writing stories is too, um, or painting pictures, but I would, I would preserve the notion of art for art's sake. I would, I would protect that at all costs because precisely one of the things that I do love about art is its total lack of functionality in certain instances or the fact that it doesn't have to be constrained by that. Art can be the purest expression of, of, of human nature, of your, I don't know, your innermost thoughts or whatever the case might be, because you have no loyalties to anyone when making a piece of art you have no obligations no considerations I think there should be a total complete and utter freedom as to what we then do with the things which are produced by individuals that's a different consideration and the role of art as a as a whole art as an institution art as a cultural space maybe that's a different thing but But I would preserve art for art's sake from the perspective of the artist at all costs
0: but if 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 there are no constraints to art, if, if it can just be um, the, 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 yeah, the purest expression of, of what the artist wants to create of art, doesn't art as a category, as a concept, break down if everything
1: and anything can, can be it? Um, to an extent, yeah. But um, categories were imposed retrospectively to begin with. Categorization is the prerogative of the critic and the theorist, not of the artist. The artist could do whatever he wants. As long as the artist self-identifies as an artist, that's fine. Again, what I say is like, there there, there has to be, um, it's the same thing as like, if you want to live off of music, say, um, just off the top of my head, random (laughs) example, then, then you're constrained by the fact that you can make whatever you want, doesn't mean people will listen to it. You can make whatever you want, doesn't mean people will endorse it and offer you patronage. Mm -hmm. So there will be compromises inherent to it. And the laws of supply and demand, in a sense, might determine that, you know, if you have enough, if you have enough stability and security like a utopia might offer, then literally anything can become art. But if you need... If you need to make your living from art, then maybe functionality becomes a prerequisite because you have to give something to other people. You have to offer something to other people, whether as a secondary condition of what you're doing or whether as like an inherent part of your process, something that you're actively considering, you know. Um, But I think that's something that arranges itself naturally within society. I think if there's no like if we if there's no demand for art, then people can still make it doesn't mean it's going to go anywhere, you know.
0: Interesting. You give me a lot to think about as you do every episode. Um, but we're already going uh, quite late. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to, to actually end my, my portion of, of the, uh, of the episode <laughs> now, um, ending okay. with ending with a quote unusually. Mm, you know, quote. Nice. And this is the final line of the, um, of, of, uh, the, the Amber Spyglass, which is the, uh, the, the original His Dark Materials series. Mm. Um, And Lyra, who is the protagonist, talking to her demon, which is sort of an external manifestation of her soul, says, um, But then we wouldn't have been able to build it. No one could if they put themselves first. We have to be all of those difficult things like cheerful and kind and curious and patient. And we've got to study and think and work hard, all of us in all of our different worlds. And then we'll build. And then what? Build what? The Republic of Heaven. And... The premise is there that, um, I don't know if you're familiar with His Dark Materials as a series it's great it is great but but uh it, it, the premise is that there is a sort of a, a war fought to to free um people of all worlds from from the rule of the authority which is how they sort of refer to god and heaven in those um and there's a master plot by a man called lord Azrael who wants to build the republic of heaven on this sort of special world and it comes to light throughout the book that, that won't work and that we have to build the republic of heaven where we are through our
1: actions very nice and actually a beautiful sentiment to end on. Um, mm. But I'll, I'll do you one better. Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> I, I will say that um, I may or may not have mentioned this before. Actually, I think I've almost definitely mentioned this before on this podcast. But I'll bring it up again because it's still worth saying. And that's that Noam Chomsky uh, wrote a book or, wait, basically gathered a collection of ideas together in a book called On Anarchism and mm-hmm. at the end of the book he is interviewed by um the editor presumably and um many different questions are offered to him uh one of which most interestingly for me is um what does it mean to hold a notion of anarchism um as a political philosophy anarchism or you know this kind of like like kind of like small commune based syndicalism libertarianism type thing, whatever you want to define his political stance as, which is so radically different from the world that we currently inhabit and which really requires total overhaul in order to achieve, right? Um, what does that do for your political process, for your political involvement, if your objectives probably are most readily obtained by triggering revolution? Um, Sure, and, and, and the response that he provides, which I think is very thoughtful and is definitely something that stayed with me, is that despite holding a utopia that seems basically far-fetched given the direction in which the world is heading in and almost like a fool's dream um, to maintain, that doesn't mean that, um, that all evils that, or, or all conditions which aren't it are equally bad you know, or not worth fighting for. And, you know, not everything may lead in that direction, but at least certain things can marginally improve people's lives, marginally build better societies, you know. And so political decisions um, and opportunities to reform society must still be taken on a case-by-case basis and should never be dismissed as opportunities to improve and to try and trigger us to move in the right directions, um, despite holding those things. So he says if you're able to participate, able to be involved in the small degrees of political action that your vote can, can count for or your, your campaigning or fundraising, whatever it might be, then do so as well as hold within you um, a notion of the society that one day you would love to live in um, based on the ideals that you wish everyone would hold. Um, and that those two things can coexist and that you should allow them to yeah
0: that's uh fascinating and also i think a very important um
1: yeah message to, to sort of conclude
0: this 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 uh season 2 of on on virtue um are there any are there any uh, other highlights you want to explicitly state that weren't covered in this um uh ra- ra- rather wonderful and wide, wide sweeping quote nick
1: i think one time to to, to to drill in what you like to say is just, um, the premise of reflection, you know, I think that's definitely something not just reflection, but like the multifaceted nature of reflection, Mm. you know, um, of whether it's, um, on a micro scale, um, within yourself being introspective, taking a moment to think, to consider, um, whether it's to work on your gratitude or to evaluate your circumstances, to reflect on what you've accomplished on where you'd like to go. Um, or or to do so on a broader scale for your family for your community, for your society, for your planet um that is that is um certainly a crucial element um and not to allow yourself to be drowned by that, but to be guided by it to live in tandem with it hmm um that's uh, I think that that about that about
0: covers it the only thing i i will I will add in addition is um something that actually didn't come up until last uh last episode. Which is, yeah, the world, the world around us is, is a beautiful place and and deserves recognition of that. And by cultivating that recognition, we can cultivate an appreciation for the for the world in itself, and that some things, I suppose, uh, deserve the effort, as it was.
1: Yeah, I understand that absolutely. Now, yeah, in order to exemplify, typify the beauty of the world, mm. um, we have we have some fun facts. Do you have do. some admin? to do before then.
0: I do, I do. Um, I, I would say, first of all, um, tune back in for Series 3 on Mind. Um, maybe we'll do that right at the end as a kicker. But um, we are going to come yeah. back with another season. This is not the end of an unqualified guide to the good life. We have lots of other lack of qualifications to push. Um, <laughs> and uh, and the other thing is, you know, it, it's coming up to the um, the, the holiday season um as it's as it's colloquially known candle nights is is how i prefer to think of it as an homage to that wonderful podcast my brother my brother and me you should go and listen to that it's a better podcast than this one um but um, <laughs> we're gonna have to talk about that oh, that's <laughs> fucked up that's fucked up um but in, in, in the spirit of virtue, in the spirit of this, I would recommend looking up um, a, a cause that is perhaps close to you and consider, if possible, uh, making, a, making a donation of, of time or money. Um, in the interest of anarchism, there are, there are lots of uh, mutual aid groups all over the place, and that could be a good place to start. Um, also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at GoodLifeCast. Any admin, oh, from, any admin from you, Nick? No. <laughs> Excellent. Um,
1: do you have a fun fact? I do have a fun fact. I I haven't picked it yet, but there's a list in front of me, <laughs> and um, <laughs> this episode. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, no. I just wanted to. I just wanted to talk about um, the Mariana Trench, the deepest Great. point um, in in the ocean. Uh, you know nearly nearly two kilometers deeper than Edre, uh, Everest is tall. Wow. Um which is it's deep which is an an important fact. And um it's it, firstly it's con- okay I have two fun facts for it. Um Ooh. I have three fun facts for it. Ooh okay. The first is that um although the Mar- oh, the Marion its temperature is so low um, ranging from 34 to 39 degrees Fahrenheit, which I don't know what that is in Celsius degrees. Uh, so of two um, or three degrees, I okay. guess. Yeah. You know, um, so it's considered to be one of the world's coldest places because it consistently stays at that temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, but that despite that, there are hot water vents that emit minerals such as hydrogen sulfide, which uh, feed the bacteria that feed the microbes that in turn feed the ocean's fish. So it's kind of a crucial um, element of the ocean's ecosystem. And um, it's also basically a mass graveyard. Although there's virtually no light down there, uh, the ocean floor of the Mariana Trench has a yellowish color to it because of all the decaying plants and animals and skeletons and shells that are continually being deposited there. Wow. Metal. That's cool. Mm. So that's my fun fact. Well,
0: thank you for that that um, that, that menagerie of fun facts, and um, <laughs> I, I wonder if in the next season we will we will continue with an underwater theme, or perhaps move to another
1: ecosystem. Anything is possible. I might do trees. I might just stay and stick with trees.
0: I look forward to it very much. I also have a fact. It is not a fun fact, uh, <laughs> and i in fact I'm gonna I'm gonna make you I'm gonna allow you to participate in it, Nick, as a as a guessing right. game. God. Um, in the Boston metropolitan area, the, uh, the median wealth for a white family is $247,500. Can you guess the median wealth for a black family in the same area? I say family, I mean household
1: in the same area. Mm, you said 247000 Yeah. I'll say $190,000. Um, I'm afraid
0: that's uh, a little over the mark. It is, in fact, eight what (laughs) eight dollars it's eight dollars the median wealth for the median wealth for a black family in the boston metropolitan area or a black household in the boston metropolitan area is eight dollars oh why would you bring (laughs) i know it's pretty tragic huh uh to i suppose inspire rage in our listeners wow wow well what what um call to action to demand better what? for the world what's a way to
1: end our series <laughs> big
0: up adam big up yourself <laughs> yeah and um uh as I said we'll be we'll be we'll be back next week with a with a special interlude episode um in we which we in which we interview um dr matthias schmale the director of for gaza we had a wonderful conversation with him not long ago um and then after that we'll be back with um season three of an unqualified guide to the good life mind where we talk about how our relationship with thoughts and thinking can do us for the good life (laughs) jesus christ (laughs)
1: thank god we have a couple weeks to prepare
0: (laughs) and until then dear listener um with the message of this podcast being love but also rage as defined by that last quote um i wish you all a wonderful day and goodbye
1: peace